Hello, and welcome to Dialogues in Dermatology. I'm Dr. Todd Schlesinger, your Editor-in-Chief. We have another exciting podcast for you today. We hope that you enjoy. Hello, this is Dr. Vesna Petronik-Rosich for Dialogues in Dermatology. I have a special treat for you today, two guests that will be discussing diversity in clinical trials, Dr. Valerie Harvey and Dr. Clinton Enos. Welcome, Dr. Harvey and Dr. Enos. Would you please kindly introduce yourselves to our listeners? Welcome, and thank you so much for having me. I'm a board-certified dermatologist with a practice in Newport News, Virginia, in Virginia Beach, Virginia, and I also have the honor of serving as the current president of the Skin of Color Society. It's a pleasure to be here with you today. Thank you. Thank you. And again, I'm very excited to be here. This is Clinton Enos. I'm an assistant professor of dermatology at Eastern Virginia Medical School in Norfolk, Virginia. Thanks again for having me. Oh, it's our pleasure. Dr. Enos, today we want to discuss your recent research letter, Similar Response to Biologic Therapy Across Racial and Ethnic Groups Among Psoriasis Patients Enrolled in the Corvita Psoriasis Registry and the broader topic of DI representation in clinical research. Would you please let us know what prompted this study and how you went about doing it? Sure. So uh, I've been really fortunate to have been mentored by Abby Van Voorhees here at EVMS, and she's been really instrumental in helping start my career with a research focus. We've worked together uh, in a few studies in collaboration with Coravitas, uh, specifically their psoriasis registry, which really kind of has focused on the natural history of psoriasis. And when we started our research, we were looking at geographic trends in the disease, as well as therapy use and treatment outcomes. And in a, in a very stepwise fashion, we started to realize that uh, psoriasis is not really a constant entity across the different regions within the registry. I mean, this was like a very important concept to us to kind of understand that psoriasis in one individual is not really the same as psoriasis in another. And that led to this idea to sort of investigate whether or not biologic therapy is universal across all racial and ethnic groups. And so you use the Coravitas psoriasis registry. Can you tell us what it does and how it works? Yeah, so so Coravitas is a company that really collects data. Uh, They actually have several registries and we were fortunate to work with the psoriasis registry. And what are the primary and secondary objectives of this registry? So I think that the primary objective of the registry is really to provide real-world data on safety and efficacy of the many treatments that we have for psoriasis. But it also collects a lot of data that can help study things like the natural history of the disease, much like we, that we had been doing, things like the prevalence of comorbidities, as well as treatment patterns. Is this a free access database? Who has access to it? And do you need anything to be able to use it for research? So the Corvitas Psoriasis Registry was developed in collaboration with the National Psoriasis Foundation. And for our specific study, the data was supported by that partnership. Um, In terms of utilizing the data, you you would have to, I would turn uh, interested parties to, to Corvitas itself. Okay, very good. Um, I did review their website and I found it um, very rich in information and interesting for those of us who like doing clinical research. You chose to study specific populations. How can we assess efficacy and risks 
particularly in specific populations? So, you know, I think when it really comes down to is designing the studies and then and doing the work just to answer those specific questions. As we move forward and prioritize this type of research, I think registry data and real world data from registries like Coravitas psoriasis registry can really provide opportunity to ask those types of questions. But we do have to keep in mind that there are certain limitations using these, these databases. Thank you for that great segue into my next question. When I read your paper, I noticed that your data is from 3,249 unique patients and about 3,700 initiations of biologics. But the breakdown of these patients was 75% white, 3% black, 9% Asian, 9.4% Hispanic, and 3% other. This is not representative of the U.S. population because the U.S. population, about 40% of it identifies as non-white. My question for you is, is the number sufficient to conclude that there's a similar response to biologic therapy across racial and ethnic groups among psoriasis based on the ratios of participating groups? You know, I think you highlight a really important limitation here, and that is that our study sample consists of patients who are voluntarily enrolled into the registry while under the care of a dermatologist. So, you know, the sample then may not truly reflect the population. And you're right, the sample sizes in some of the non-white groups are small. That being said, then the, the precision of our effect estimates is a little limited, but given these findings, you know, you, you really, you need to consider our data more suggestive rather than conclusive. And so I think it's still a very unique study. I think it asked a really important question utilizing real world data. And I would love to see future studies be undertaken that, that have a more representative and larger sample size. Because I, I, mean, I think these are questions that need to be answered. Absolutely. And I would encourage our colleagues who are listening to encourage their patients to register for this database so that we can have more data available across all racial and ethnic groups. You did report that Asian participants were 23% less likely to achieve DLQI of zero or one than whites. And that seems to have been the only significant difference attributable to race or ethnicity. Can you comment on that, please? You know, I think it's a really interesting finding. And, you know, the truth of the matter is, is we still don't know. It's a question that, that needs answering and should be um, a topic for further investigation. So how can this type of research advance health equity and guide treatment decisions? Okay, so I think I'm going to answer the second part of your question first here, because I think when we are considering therapies for our, our psoriasis patients, there's a lot of factors to consider. You know, and if we're specifically going to utilize a biologic, we might consider things that relate to their past or concurrent medical conditions, for example. However, then once we've considered these, I think this type of research is super important because now we have data suggesting that patients uh, with psoriasis from all racial or ethnic backgrounds may experience improved cutaneous disease outcomes, specifically with biologics. So I think this then relates back to the first part of your question because I think this study kind of gives us more a glimpse of the finish line. That is that if we can provide the therapy to the patients, then our data suggests comparable likelihoods for response. So again, you know, this brings up that important limitation that patients that were included in the study are in a registry, 
are being cared for by a dermatologist and have had follow-up in order to be included in the study. So what I'm getting at is they all have access to care. So our current work doesn't really address health equity from the front end, but what our hope is, is that, you know, this type of study will stimulate the field to keep asking these important questions that specifically address safety and efficacy for treatments of all our patients with the goal to, you know, advance health equity and optimal care for all. And I'm so glad that you talked about this and that you did the study and preparing for this interview, I gave a lot of thoughts, um, how to advance health equity and how to fit this into the broader conversation of racial disparities. And I thought why, you know, most, I work at a County hospital. So 70% of my patients are non-white, but because it's a County hospital and because we have extremely limited resources, I have absolutely no support available to help, for example, register these patients. So there's this skewed availability of resources to actually help create more health equity. And that is really important to think about and to guide future, not just research, but also policy and decisions made that fit into this broader conversation of racial disparities in medicine. So my next question relates to social determinants of health, and they often play a larger role than biological or genetic factors that are attributed to race and healthcare outcomes. How was that factored into your research? Well, you know, I, I think this is a really important topic. And for our specific study, it wasn't really a specific component that we were asking. That being said, I think it's something that really deserves attention going forward with a lot of our research questions. So do you have any suggestions how clinicians and researchers should approach racial disparities when there's such a complex intersection of factors that both historically and presently impact treatment of individuals of color and their outcomes. Can you comment on the social determinants of health and the complex interplay with the genetic and environmental factors, please? I think this is a really important point, okay? And I really love that you use this word interplay because I really don't think that we should be thinking about these factors, i.e., like social determinants of health and, and genetics, so much as completely separate entities or independent of each other. I think we really need to remember that social determinants of health, these barriers, whether they're inherent or temporary, are really acting on the biologic framework of each individual patient. You know, as dermatologists, we are really fortunate that in our training, we learn and understand the science of skin disease. So we have this really unique opportunity then to take that knowledge and apply it in the context of trying to understand you know, who our patients are, where they are coming from and what barriers they might face. And that's really important for us to then really support, to supply optimal care to you know, each and every one of our patients. I couldn't agree more with you. Do you have any suggestions for steps that would help correct problems of DEI representation in clinical research and how future directions could be more diverse and representative or inclusive as far as research and policy? So I think this is a big question. And I think the first steps are really already being taken. And that is just because you know, we're talking about the need for it. I think researchers, stakeholders in the pharmaceutical industry, clinicians, you know, we, we all really need to consider how recruitment is conducted. 
But I think identifying that need for diverse representation is really a key first step. And there's gonna be a lot of factors that, that really go into this. And again, I think keeping this topic in the conversation is just really important. You know, I think there's a lot of momentum going right now. And I think it's just a super exciting time to be in research and to see things like diversity, representation, and inclusion being prioritized. Because if you think about it, this is really going to be some of the most accessible research that comes into the clinic, because we're going to help them be able to provide information about safety and efficacy for some of these treatments for then all of our patients. At EVMS, I'm really fortunate to, to serve a diverse population of patients. And when I'm in clinic, I've, I've actually felt more confident in my ability to provide my patients with options, thinking about some of the research that I was able to do with this study. And it's, it's really a great feeling, like you feel more connected with your patients, which I think is one of the main goals of being a physician. And I hope it's then that this type of research, you know, can make its way across the country and into the clinic so that the providers can connect with their patients in the same way. Um, you know, I think it's, a, again, it's a really exciting time. I think there is a lot of work to be done, but I think the future is actually really bright. Yes, it is. Thank you so much. And part of the reason the future is so bright is because we have wonderful representation and leadership in societies that advance diversity, equity, and inclusion. Dr. Harvey, Today, we will discuss the reasons behind the Skin of Color Society's Meeting the Challenge Summit and the recommendations that emerged about clinical trial diversity. The Skin of Color Society embodies diversity in action. Can you please tell us about the Meeting the Challenge Summit, diversity in dermatology clinical trials that convened in June 2022 in D.C.? I would be happy to. So earlier this year, the Skin of Color Society hosted the first ever diversity and clinical trial summit, meeting the challenge where we convened multiple stakeholders, including patients, dermatologists, dermatology residents, medical students, uh, communities, leaders who have experts in engaging communities and community outreach, industry we had representatives from the NIH and the FDA, as well as the three major dermatology journal editors. We were also fortunate enough to have a keynote speaker who were the granddaughter and grandson of Henrietta Lacks. And for our listeners, Henrietta Lacks was an African-American woman who unknowingly donated her cells or HeLa cells, but I'm sure we're all familiar with the HeLa cells to science and those Cells later went on to contribute to many, many different scientific advances, including the polio, development of the polio vaccine, cancer treatments, and HIV medication. So when we were able to have a deep look into their experience and journey as a family member of this woman and what that meant for them, and they also made some recommendations on what we could do better as physicians, clinicians, scientists, researchers, and engaging marginalized communities. So it was a really special day where we were able to really do a deep dive into many of the different barriers that impede broad representation of clinical trials from the various perspectives, including patient perspectives, industry perspectives, institutional perspectives and policy perspectives. So we felt like it was a successful event. It was very well received by attendees and we felt like we had some action items to some marching orders after the meeting was, was through. 
It sounds certainly like it. And it is very, very inspiring to hear all the key stakeholders across various disciplines that will help you spearhead this effort. Can you comment on the scope of underrepresentation of minorities in dermatological studies and what the barriers to progress are? So I would say within the world of dermatology, this is a relatively understudied area. So we don't have much literature to glean insight onto where we stand. The most recent publication was published in Dammer Dermatology just a year or two ago. That was a systematic literature review that looked at randomized clinical trials that were published between the years of 2015 and 2020. And what they found was that as a field, we are getting better in terms of transparency. We're doing a better job of reporting uh, the demographics in terms of race and ethnicity of study populations. But in terms of broad representation, which they defined as less than 20% of ethnically and racially diverse populations meant that you weren't very diverse. So the number of studies that aren't diverse haven't changed that much over time. So when we're looking at studies between 2010 and 2015, that's approximately 38% of studies are considered diverse. And when we're looking at this later time period between 2015 and 2020, that has stayed fairly stagnant. It hasn't changed much. So we're doing a better job at transparency, but we're probably not doing a better job in terms of representation. They also found that this number varied across disease type. And that when we look at psoriasis studies alone, that it's probably they're amongst the least diverse studies, but we already know that I believe. I believe so too. So how do you determine race for the purpose of clinical trials? So that's an excellent question. And what most people do is they rely on federal definitions of race and ethnicity and the different categories. But one of the questions that we want to explore further is how precisely we define race if we should be including it in clinical trials. And if we don't include race, what is the best demographic descriptor to capture the differences that we're seeing in responses to interventions, whether they be treatments or or whatever. So I think that is a, a next step. In fact, that's an initiative that we're looking into as one of the outcomes of this study is what are the best and the most ideal demographic descriptors to include in demographic and dermatology research studies. Um, I'm excited to see that coming. Can you talk a little bit about what contributes to the problem of lack of diversity in clinical trials? There are many. That's another thing that has been borne out in the literature and studied very well in other disciplines, but not so much in dermatology, but we can use what we've learned from other areas to kind of get a big picture of kind of where we stand and what the biggest barriers are. So, you know, they're complicated and they operate across multiple levels and they include patient-related barriers. I do want to make a, a special note, you know, historically, we often cite medical mistrust as one of the the biggest factors of 
minority willingness to participate in clinical trials, but we know now, based on numerous studies, that minority patients are just as willing to participate in clinical trials compared to non-minority or white patients. And what we're seeing maybe more important in these groups are socially determined factors, such as health insurance status, transportation-related issues, location of clinical trials, ability to take time off from work and participate in a clinical trial, that these factors may be more onerous or burdensome for our minority uh, patients. Say the other important categories in terms of barriers have to do with some of the industry-related issues, the exclusionary criteria that might disproportionately burden minority participants who are more likely to have some of the comorbidities that might exclude you from participating in a clinical trial. And the frequency of visits that make it also burdensome if you're working and you don't have time to take off from work, of course, you're not going to be able to participate. And also retention rates for those trials as well. There's the issue of community engagement and academic institutions where many of these trials taking place, not having forged relationships with these communities that are being studied. And so that that becomes another important barrier. So there are many and they're very complicated, which is probably why it's been so hard to get traction on this and to get to see progress because it's so very complicated and involves a multitude of factors that intersect. It certainly does. And even though we would love to be able to just fix them so that everything works out well for for everyone across the board, it seems like there's a lot that will have to evolve through societal and policy-related changes in order for things to line up for minorities. When I was preparing for this interview, I did some research, and one of the interesting things that I noticed daily in my practice is what they call the digital divide. And so many of my underrepresented minority patients, nobody's on power chart my chart, which is not the case for other groups, or they might not have smartphones. And all of those are barriers that, I mean, there's just so many of them, and they, most of them will need to be addressed in order for a major shift to happen. And I hope that we can contribute to that. And interestingly, while I was doing the research, obviously, addressing inclusivity will require a concerted and sustained effort from multiple stakeholders. And there has to be a major paradigm shift. The drive to address this trial inclusivity, it could take decades or generations based on everything you've said. And an example that I found was that the efforts to increase the number of female clinical trial participants by the US FDA started in the 90s, but it only recently approached parity climbing from less than 20% to 45%. So it took 30 years for that. And the efforts to address ethnic and racial diversity are so much more recent. It's really been less than 10 years since the FDA mandated reporting of demographic subgroups in clinical trials. And now we have this concern and confusion on the right path to move forward. What is your view, Dr. Harvey, of the steps required to achieve inclusivity in clinical trials? So I agree with you. It is something that's going to have to happen over time with 
deliberate, intentional initiatives that involve the community. You know, it took us a long time to get here. I think it's going to take us a long time to get out of this situation where we can achieve parity and equity. And it's gonna to have to happen, as you said, on multiple levels, but I think the heavy lift is going to have to come from policy changes, either through incentives and grant programs that fund research in low resource settings or community health settings where, so that you're meeting people where they are and where you're more likely to engage these populations. There have been some promising legislative initiatives that have recently come through in terms of the clinical trial, the clinical treatment act, which now requires all states to cover expenses associated with clinical trial participation for Medicaid enrollees. So that's something that's really promising. But I think having this extend beyond the moment where everybody's really focused on diversity and equity and knowing that this is something that happens over the long term by fostering authentic relationships with the communities that we're trying to engage, really bringing them in and working with them in partnership to identify the priorities that are important to them and their communities and, and making sure that we don't do kind of a but I'm trying to think of the word when researchers kind of come in and come out so that it's not transactional, that we really care about them. We are here for the long term, before the study, after the study, because we care and they're engaged. And I think that's when you see things will start to change. But this is something that will take time. In terms of dermatology, I really think it's important to have workforce diversification in dermatology. It's something that we have been speaking about as a field for a very, very long time. And if we want to see progress in research and dermatologic science, then it really happens when we really broaden uh, the workforce and our leaders who are making the decisions of what the research directions are going to be. When our journal boards are diverse, because they have so much power in deciding what gets into the journal and shaping the scientific direction of the field. I think all of those things together have to happen for us to be able to see progress. I could not agree more. And I wanna make sure our listeners are aware that there's the Skin of Color Society offers so many opportunities for mentorship research and involvement at all levels of careers. So not just for medical students or pre-med or residents, but, but also faculty and, and any, it doesn't even have to be an academic career. Please do get involved and you can go to the skinofcolorsociety.org website and read about the meeting, the challenge summit and see how you can contribute as a board certified dermatologist or as in someone who is going towards that goal of becoming one. And this is very much in line with the AAD's diversity, equity, and inclusion plan, which I'm very happy to say. Is there anything you would like to add for our listeners? Any last thoughts of how we can make ourselves an integral part of this long-term transformation? How can we contribute? 
Well, I would just say the lesson I learned from this summit was that this is very much a problem that requires all hands on deck, quote unquote. And the relationships that I made from the meeting and the connections that I made really just reinforced the fact that none of this, us can do this alone, operating in our own separate silos, that we collaboration is really how we move forward. And I encourage all of our, your listeners, our listeners to look into the Skin of Color Society, visit our website, learn about what we're doing. We welcome everyone, regardless of, of skin color. <laughs> we want everyone, people who are really excited and passionate and enthusiastic about improving our field and making our field better. And we, we are better when we have all different perspectives, people from all different walks of life and experiences sharing their knowledge and their expertise. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Enos and Dr. Harvey. This was such an inspiring and passionate conversation, which is what makes my heart just full of joy. And I am ready to move forward and contribute as much as I can, all for a better path and for a better world where there is health equally for all. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. We hope you have enjoyed this edition of Dialogues in Dermatology. This is Todd Schlesinger, your Editor-in-Chief. For more podcasts, including bonus issues, check us out online at the website of the American Academy of Dermatology or through the Dialogues in Dermatology app. You can now also sync your subscription to your favorite podcast app. New podcasts are released each week in addition to our monthly JAD podcasts. We hope you enjoy these new options for listening to dialogues and the increasing content for your listening pleasure. Thank you.